Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio, where we ask the question, what footprints are you leaving? We're your hosts, Tanya Nan Fitzpatrick, and we continue to bring you stories from South Africa as the World Cup continues to excite fans around the world. On today's show, we're celebrating culture and heritage with a focus on art in South Africa and as a transformative force. First, Martin Britz, the president and founder of Soweto Fine Arts, joins us from Johannesburg, South Africa, to share his unique story and his quest to promote and empower the diverse people on the African continent and expose its art treasures to the world. We'll share some unique insights into the people, culture, and South African society with us today. Then we'll pay a visit to Baltimore's Gallery Mertiz for a symposium of art collectors who gather to talk about the role art plays in their lives and travels and how art can be a force for cultural education, preservation, and philanthropy. And remember, if you have a question or a comment, write us at comments at worldfootprints.com. We look forward to connecting with you during the week on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and now Stitcher, the new mobile app that lets you listen to World Footprints on a mobile device so you can take us with you on the go. You can sign up for those things from our website at worldfootprints.com. Martin Britz is the president and founder of Soweto Fine Arts. He has been working and specializing in the art produced by the black fine artists from Soweto since the late 1980s. Martin's commitment to promote and manage the culture and historical resources, empower the diverse people on the African continent, and expose its hidden treasures to the world, led him to resign from the South African Police Service and devote his life cultivating relationships with the artists and their families long before apartheid ended. Martin joins us today to share his personal journey as a South African Afrikaner and help us discover the wonderful cultural treasures he has worked to preserve. Martin, welcome. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. We're so happy to have you. Your personal journey is such a compelling one. You served in both the former South African National Defense Force as well as the South African Police Service. Share with our audience your story about how you led uh, yourself to leave law enforcement, resign completely from that, and enter the world of fine art. Well, it's actually a very interesting background. Um, South Africa at the time had conscripted military service for all young men that, you know, left school at the age of 18, and you either had a choice of studying or, you know, you had to go directly into military service. I started studying art at one of our universities, and then I carried on into my military service after also studying teaching for a while. And um, art was actually my love since the age of 16. My, my father was a fine art auctioneer and an art dealer. So I grew up with, with art, and uh, I understood the art, and I had a, a very fine feeling to it. And all through my military career, as well as my South African police force career, I continued with the art until it, it became a situation where I had to do it full-time. 
Talk about your early start as an art dealer, how your clientele and the transforming perception of black art has taken over time. It's actually what had happened. My father dealt in what what today would be termed as South African old masters, Mm -hmm. which really comprised the white artists at the time. And as such, he was one of the biggest art dealers, and the black guys used to come to him to market and sell their work. Now, I had to work in the storerooms with the guys, and I worked with the black guys most of the times. So I had the privilege of meeting you know, some of the greatest South African artists, Eli Kubeli, Ben Makala, uh, in person, and we would have long conversations, and they would tell me their stories. And so I grew up with this around me, and I started understanding that they had a different story to tell, and that uh, the paintings or the pictures weren't just normal paintings. You know, if you, if you look at the art, sometimes you, you just see a, a beautiful uh, composition of color, but there are lots of deeper hidden meanings. Mm-hmm. And I started researching this um, and, and asking questions and documenting it so that, uh, you know, we can later on where we now, uh, 15, 20 years down the line, this is preserved for, you know, for eternity and it can be told. Now, Martin, I understand um, that your your earlier clients, um, a lot of the the uh, the folks in in power and the government, um, there was actually and surprisingly an interest in uh, in black art and purchasing some of the uh, the artwork that uh, that you represented way back when. How has that changed over the years? In the perception that uh, that people in general, um, but particularly the uh, you know fellow Afrikaners um, and, and, and others that uh, were really um, part of the apartheid movement back in the day. Yeah, Tanya, that's interesting. Um, you know, it's an interesting subject, but. Uh, Talking about 15, 20 years ago, some of the influential people, um, to name a few, uh, Patrice Mutsepe, who today is the wealthiest uh, African on the continent, um, he and a fellow by the name of Patuma Nsleku started out African Rainbow Minerals, which today is one of the largest consortiums on the continent. Um, uh, Patuma is the CEO of MTN, the cell phone group. And these guys at that time were really just looking for art to decorate their offices and their homes with and not really wanting the European or the typical white art. Um, At that stage in time, I was one of the only white art dealers that really dealt exclusively in black art. And this put me into touch with him, and um, that's how our relationships began. And, and, and what about the exposure, though? How is the exposure um, to growing communities over the years affected and influenced some of the artists that you, you represented early on and continue to represent? 
Well, what has happened over the years, um, not just white South Africans, uh, what you've got to understand is the background or the typical socioeconomic background where we come from. Um, Fifteen years ago, it wasn't within reach of the average income earner to purchase art or it wasn't something that the typical black South African would be interested in at that time purely because of the economic circumstances but over the years that has greatly changed where your middle income group has grown and these people are today your buying power and they are looking for their typical historical and um, cultural relevant artwork to, to collect and to beautify their homes and offices with. And as we've grown over the years, we can now accommodate that and expose these artists as it is to their own people, let alone the international market. Part of that growth is that uh, there's now a generation of young artists coming along who who did not have to deal with uh, uh apartheid firsthand, and so they are now uh, coming out of this legacy that's part of the Rainbow Nation. Talk to us about how South Africa's growing stature on the world stage is influencing the art that we're now seeing from some of the newer artists. Well, Ian, when you look at the, the history behind it, when you actually look at the Soweto School, um, now the term Soweto School refers to this group of artists, which uh, is approximately 35 people that has worked in and around the Johannesburg Soweto area. And they were really in the middle of apartheid. They were in the middle of the violence of everything that had occurred. And you can really define the group as a pre-Soweto school, the Soweto school, and then the post-Soweto school. Mm -hmm. So the group of people that you're referring to, the younger people, would form part of the post-Soweto school. And there's a clear line that you can actually draw when you look at the difference in subject matter, composition, etc. Um, the, the Soweto school artists, by and large, um, there's very few of them that, that received any form of formal art education or training. So the technique and the actual paintings created is in a total different style than what's produced today. Mm. Because the young, younger artists that you're referring to, they've come a different route. They've gone through university. They've been academically trained mm -hmm. uh, as far as, as art and art handling of material uh, composition, etc. goes. So there's a very, very clear line of difference. Now, Martin, we talk a lot about um, you know, transformative experiences, a preservation of culture and history. And talk to us about how art is uh, playing an integral role in uh, preserving um, cultures and and building bridges against uh, uh, between cultures. Well, Tanya, first of all, um, being a white Afrikaner, I've been in a in a very unique position. Um, as a youngster, up until the age of 16, I grew up on a farm, and I was actually in very poor, impoverished conditions. 
and I lived very closely to a black family. And this allowed me to identify very much with a black man. And later on in life, then again going to live with my father, which was on the other end of the scale. He was very, very well off. And he lived in the typical white affluent African society. Um, and that made me see the machinery, the political machinery that was put into place by the South African government and how the Afrikaner nation, especially the young white South African men, had actually been shaped from day one to become part of this machinery. Um, and part of that was a South African Defence Force, of which I, in which I was an officer, as well as the South African Police, in which I served as a detective. Mm-hmm. So it allowed me a unique insight into both worlds. And it was this that actually allowed me to see how the history and the socioeconomics influenced um, and how it came through in the art and how it was portrayed. Martin, talk about some of the things uh, that the South African artists, particularly the black artists, have had to overcome in terms of getting recognized on a much broader scale within some of the more mainstream art communities around the world and how has that battle been fought and and what have you been doing to really help raise the profile of these artists well Ian that's uh, you know that has been one of uh, the battle for the the black artists in South Africa to first of all to be accepted as artists as been a, a huge, 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 um, st- let's say it, it's been a, a edge to them to get into the mainstream South African art world. Mm. Uh, one, because in the black culture, it was frowned upon to be an artist. Okay, it was, it wasn't an acceptable occupation, um, in the, in the black cultures. So, first of all, they had to overcome that difficulty of being accepted in their own communities, in their own households. Okay, secondly, these guys, their art was never looked upon as serious art. It was considered tourist art, or what would be referred to as pavement art. Um, And the real market, the people they were selling to, was really the white South African buyer. So, and that's part of the uniqueness of this art, because in reality, it, it is really um, art that, 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 that tells the history of the, the black man in South Africa without the gore to it. Um, for instance, in some of the countries like Cuba or Russia, similar artworks were created, but we would see decapacitated bodies, um, limbs, blood, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. In the South African background, you would see beautiful pictures, but if you look at it, there's something wrong. To give you an example, Ben McCalla which is a world-renowned artist, and it's the typical Madonna faces with the big black eyes. He's recognized throughout the world. Now, prior to what happened, these paintings or the faces all were very dull and dark. They had black eyes. The eyes were closed. 
there was no colour in the faces. After the the release of Nelson Mandela and the the South Africa moving into a new dimension, these paintings got a new breath of life. All of a sudden, they they had colour. There was colour in the lips. The eyes were open. You could see the white of the pupils, the red of the lips. So these guys were painting for a South African market, and they didn't want to offend their buying public. Mm. So they were telling the stories very subtly, but yet if you took the time to look at a painting and think about it and say, what's wrong in this picture? You would see a miner using very powerful electric tools, but his eyes were closed. Okay, and, you, and if you sat and looked at the art, you would think, you know, anybody handling equipment like this would be looking what he's doing, right? Okay, so, and if, if you think about that, one of the questions I asked Godfrey was, why are the eyes closed of the people? And he said to me, we had to carry on with our daily lives and refuse to look at what was perceived as reality and look at the future beyond what our present situation is. When we return, we'll learn more from Martin Britz, who joins us from South Africa, as World Footprints Radio continues. Hello, my name's Catherine. I live in France, in Chambéry, in the French Alps, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. making sure the air in your dream home is healthy for your family to breathe. Building a radon-resistant home is easy. Just ask your builder or go to epa.gov slash radon. A message from the U.S. EPA. Well, he moved early. That's going to draw the yellow flag. Offsides, number 72, five yards. Check out this fan leaving the game. He's headed straight up the middle and right into a sobriety checkpoint. Let's see how he handles it. No, officer. I haven't been drinking. I'm the designated driver. Upon further review, this fan made the right call by being a designated driver. Sign up to be the designated driver at the stadium and always buckle up. You could follow your favorite NFL team to the Super Bowl. Provided as a public service by the station and team coalition. Tom Gilmore lives on a farm. There's a storm on the way, so he's boarding up the windows of his house. Haley Williams lives in an apartment. It's a beautiful day. She's making her usual monthly donation to the American Red Cross. Tom doesn't know a tornado will leave his family with no place to go. Haley doesn't know her gift will help give Tom's family shelter. When you support the Red Cross, you change a life. Starting with your own. Call 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcross.org to learn about life-changing opportunities in your area. Hi, I'm Johannes from Pretoria, Gauteng in South Africa. I love listening to you and I want you to support I am Antonia at World Footprint Radio. It is exciting. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. Here's more of our conversation with Martin Britz as we talk about South Africa. Martin, I'm just curious. You've mentioned that in the black community, being an artist was not an acceptable career aspiration. Why is that? Why was acceptance uh, so slow and, and difficult for aspiring artists? 
Well, Tanya, first of all, if you, if you go to the root of it, and this is what the book explores, um, South African black tribes were typically not, uh, let's say, industrialized people. They were people living in, uh, in the rural areas. They were farmers. They were herdsmen. That was their normal lifestyle, okay, um, having cattle, uh, that, that was a typical lifestyle. And with the industrialization of South Africa taking place in the early 1900s, the black working force, that's how Soweto came about, um, the, the demand was there for a workforce. And all of a sudden, these people were taken out of the typical cultural backgrounds and their typical roles, and they were placed in an industrial setting. Um, and most of these people were, in the early days, working either in factories or in the mines. So in, in those days, uh, an artist in this melting pot was actually considered as a, as a bum. He, he mm. didn't have a job. Um, you know, he was too lazy to work in a mine, or that was a perception. Mm. Um, and yet the artist, you know, if you, I often refer to them and say that they are the looking glasses of a society because what they really do is they perceive the society and, and these guys are very gentle spirits who feel everything that's happening around them and it either comes out in incredible talent, whether it be music or poetry um, or in this case, fine art. Mm-hmm. So they actually take the, the universal feeling and, and portray it. Um, and in the typical background where they came from, this, this wasn't manly enough, if you want to put it that way. Uh, yeah. And that's what I, that's what okay. I assumed you were, uh, you were, uh, uh, inferring. Um, you, you'd mentioned, uh, a book, and, and I'm assuming you're talking about your newly completed book, South African Fine Art, the Soweto School, which I know was a labor of love for you. It took, uh, several years to, to complete. Tell us, tell us about that, about your book. Well, yes, it's, it is, it has been a labor of love. Um, it's taken me 15 years to complete the book and get to the stage where we are now publishing it. Um, and right in the beginning, I must tell you, I never set out to write the, the book and for it to be what it has become. I purely wanted to put something there for somebody to go and read about this group of people. But as we've progressed, it, it has now been accepted as a historical and cultural um, background because it explores all the different influences and how that had factors into the, the lives of the artists. And the way that I've actually established the Soweto School of Art is to compare them to the French Impressionists now, the parallels are so exact, it's actually scary. Um, you know, the French Impressionists lived in similar social economic backgrounds. They were considered as rebels. Their art was never taken seriously. 
um, they were, uh, you know, coming up against the political um, leaders at the time, and they followed a whole new direction. And that is similar to what had occurred here. Um, and the book explores the parallels and allows us to define the Soweto School of Art. One of the things about art that uh, is, is a curious feature to it, that when artists go on, uh, their art seemingly is more valuable. But I can imagine that in South Africa there was kind of this uh, curious uh, uh, situation where, where post-apartheid you've got these new artists whose, whose names are growing and they are here to articulate what their art represents, what it stands for, what it means, and people can have those relationships and it's easy to document that. But for the artists who have passed and their art remains, how are the families able to benefit from that and, and, and how are some of the things that you're doing helping to, uh, benefit those who perhaps weren't able to reap the rewards of, of their art as it's grown in stature today? Well, Ian, um, what you're mentioning is a, a real day life situation. Uh, many of these artists, as you rightly say, have passed on. And at the moment on the world stage, African art, and in particular South African fine art, is really coming to the fore, and incredible prices are being reached. Now, the artist, uh, you know, 15 years ago, I, I started writing down the first interviews. Mm -hmm. um, and what I also did, I've got some of the only video interviews with these artists. Um, you know, somehow, and not really somehow, by the guidance of God, although I didn't know it at the time, um, I had the foresight to, to video these guys and have interviews with them, um, knowing that the time will come that these people won't be around to tell the story, uh, and knowing that the, the story has to be told, it has to be preserved. So that, that, that is part of, of why this book has been such a great thing to me, personally. Because not because of, of, of just me, but of the history of our country, of the history of this people. Um, it's something that, that influences our daily lives. Now, just to come back to how does a family benefit, previously or typically, if an artist in the past had sold a regional artwork, that artwork is lost to the artist and to the family irrespective of the value that it will pick up in due course. So, for instance, uh, to mention one, Winston Sowley, he used to sell his works for 500 rand, which, you know, in today's terms is maybe $80. Now, today the very same work sells for ten to $15,000, but nobody typically would have reaped the benefits of that financial progression. Now, years ago, I met an African-American gentleman by the name of Ted Pendell, and he made me aware of copyright. Now, copyright at that time, even in today's South African society, we, we do not really deal in prints. We've always dealt in original works of art. Mm -hmm. So I started acquiring the copyrights of all this art, and putting it into a trust 
where this uh, copyright is held. Now, the families continually now receive a percentage of the selling price of every print that is reproduced. Mm -hmm. Now, to give you an idea, uh, original work of art may sell for $1,000. Now, the print will maybe sell for $500. But now we're reproducing 150 or 145 prints uh, selling at $500 times 145. And the artist, or in the case where they've passed on the families, receive a royalty on all that work. That, that's wonderful, Martin, and, and you know uh, I, I commend you for, uh, for for what you're doing to not only support and empower uh, the artists and their families, um, but uh, but preserve preserve this work. And I, I just kind of want to circle back to a couple of things uh, you you said earlier when you're talking about the new artists that you're representing, the younger art, artists, and and how their work is represent representative of the current state of affairs in in South Africa. Um, I'm just wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more about um, how you have seen South Africa transform over the years and what the current state of race relations uh, are in the country. Tanya, it's very interesting, and there is a definite progression now, what we do um, typically, uh, I'm involved in a lot of high schools. With when I say high schools, uh, children from the ages of 15 to perhaps 18, and where we use the art as a vehicle to get a understanding between the different cultures, and we specifically go back and use the Soweto schoolwork because in the Soweto schoolwork we have the history of South Africa. Now, the children today who are 14 to 16 to 18 years old did not come through that same history. They did not perceive it as their parents did or anyone else did. And by, by t- taking the art and examining our history and looking at the portrayal in the artwork, uh, there's a much clearer understanding of where the different people in a class comes from. To give you an example, in a typical South African high school right now, you would sit with a white kid that lives in an absolute affluent white area, and in the same classroom you'd sit with a black child that lives in a squatter camp with hardly any facilities. And this is happening right now. This is, this is something that is, is relevant and it's happening in our culture today. So a lot of the, the white kids would look at the black kids and not understand, uh, for instance, a simple thing. Why didn't he have a bath last night? Why couldn't he do his homework? Really simple. He doesn't have a bath. He doesn't have lights to work with. And this has helped us to help the the young children, the next generation of leaders, to have a better understanding of their background and where they are in South African society. When we return, we'll get more South African art insights from Martin as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Romania. Make sure you don't miss the World Footprints Radio every Tuesday. This is President Barack Obama. 
In the story of America, the greatest chapters are moments of challenge, when we see people serving their country and one another, volunteers who step forward into hospital corridors and church basements, along levees and fire lines. And the next chapter is yours to help write. Sign up to volunteer at usaservice.org. That's usaservice.org. Let's renew America together. A message from Renew America Together, brought to you by the Ad Council. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert, to spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about, to teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps, life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. Making it green is making sure the air in your home is healthy for your family to breathe. Testing for radon is easy. Just call 866-730-GREEN. Make it green, green, green. A message from the US EPA. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I live in the South. California is my home. I speak fluent Spanish. No hablo espanol. I have brown eyes. My eyes are blue. We're very different people, but we do have something in common. I made a donation to the Red Cross. When disaster struck and I needed help, her gift to the American Red Cross changed my life. When you support the American Red Cross, you change a life, starting with your own. Call 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcross.org and find out about life-changing opportunities in your area. Hey, this is Amy. I'm from Manitoba. Woo, Manitoba. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Rocks my socks. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. And welcome back. Here's more with Martin Fritz, who joins us from South Africa. Martin, as we speak about some of those class differences, talk to us about just the state of art education in South African primary schools and so forth, and particularly how children are gaining exposure to art, to art education, because it's rather profound. Some of the things that we see come from the hands and the eyes of children uh, in art. It, 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 It can really offer profound uh, statements about just life and perhaps seeing life differently and maybe some of the optimism that perhaps is lost in the harshness of more adult, more refined art. Well, Ian, that, uh, that is one of the things that has kept me going over the years and that has motivated me to complete the book and make sure it gets out there simply because in South Africa right now in the curriculum in the schools, there is no prescribed textbook on black art. There is no textbook looking at black artists per se, examining their work, establishing them on, on the level which they rightly should be. And the, the curriculum at the moment looks at white artists and the white artists are pushed as the South African masters. Now, one of one of the things in the book which is a radical point, 
but I have reason to do that, is I'm actually stating that a lot of South African old masters are in fact not South African masters. These are European people that were trained academically in Europe, whether it be um, Holland, whether it be Germany, whether it be France, England, and they subsequently came to South Africa in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and they painted here with a European perspective. And they, they did their work here, but their basis, their motivation, their academics was never in South African roots. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we can say that they are South African masters, then we've also got to say that Vincent van Gogh was a French impressionist. But we don't say that. He's a Dutch master, although he worked with the French impressionists. So um, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to document this and preserve it for the children. Because if you look at numbers, South African society, we have approximately 48 million people in the country, out of which about 767 million is white. Now, at present moment, present day South Africa, there is still no comprehensive textbook on black art. Hmm. Well, I, I want to, speaking of books, I want to circle back to, to your book, uh, your new book, South African Fine Art, The Soweto School, um, and, and ask you to share a talk about your relationship with Morehouse University, because I understand that they're, they're uh, a, an integral partner with the uh, publication of your book. And I also understand Morehouse has an extraordinary protest art collection. Talk, talk about that relationship well Tanya it started about 10 years ago uh, one of my American clients by the name of Dr. Herbert Charles was associated to the college and he really just fell in love with, with South African fine art and he at the time um, had discussions with the then president of Morehouse and they decided to collect South African fine art and to start an extensive collection, which they at the time did. And over the years, I've kept in very narrow contact with Moorhouse um, to the point that today they are busy editing the final manuscript of the book. And we are also looking at creating a discipline at the college uh, in the social sciences and humanities, hmm. using the art as a vehicle to do that. Very similar to what I've done in the high schools over here. Hmm. Because if you, if you look at uh, today, we, you know, we, we use the term global citizen. And one of the things that, that we see a phenomena is, you know, uh, for instance, we have a lot of black Americans coming to Africa as the homeland. And similar, we have a lot of white South Africans going to America as the homeland. And very strangely, or funny enough, once they are in the said homeland, they find they're not in the homeland because of their their culture, because of where they've grown up, because of where they've been, because of the history. 
and there's, this is a field to explore. It's, it's open to be explored and to be looked at, and we use the art to do this. Now, the reason why I also wanted to be associated with Murals, and I just want to make it clear they're not a partner in the book, but they are editing the book, and they're kind of overseeing the, the physical writing of the book, Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to put it into the term we use, they they Americanizing it. Um, uh, you know, the language differs quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, apart from the fact that I wanted to write an art book, I also, from day one, wanted it to be historically and academically correct. So the research and the facts that has gone into the book is not just, you know, my vision or my reasoning, but it's researched materials. Um, and as such, there are also uh, transcripts from very prominent South Africans. Uh, Dr. Desmond Tutu has agreed to do the foreword of the book. Um, ex, the first South African National Police Commissioner, uh, George Fivers, who was the first... Uh, South African Police Commissioner appointed by President Mandela. Mm. He's doing a part on the South African Police Forces history, uh, which I've described in the book. Um, the first black Minister of Defense in South Africa. He's uh, done a part describing the role of the Defense Force and how that influenced South African life. So it's, uh, it, uh, you know, with Murau's editing the book and and looking at it, it just gives it that credibility that I want. Martin, how far away are we from seeing the book uh, and and a possible book tour for the book? Well, what we are doing currently, um, Ian, we are in the... the the whole manuscript has been done. Uh, We're going through a process of final editing of the manuscript, which will take approximately five months from the date. And we're looking at a, at a book launch at Murals College at the, in the later part of this year, at the, at the latest, early 2011. Um, coinciding with this, I've also donated an extensive collection of Soweto School artworks to Murals, which will also then be opened, the Murals Soweto School collection. Um, and part of, of, of the reasoning, I want this artwork to be available to everybody and on as many platforms as possible, especially in a student community and a scholar community where they can, you know, where academic growth and, and academic um, qualifications can be made in it. If people want to learn more about uh, your art collection and keep abreast of the a development of the book and uh, find out about a possible book tour. Is there a place where people can go? Absolutely. We, Ian, we own and operate one of the most extensive websites on definitely South African art, and all the people are there. The history is there. Uh, the background is there, and it's at www. And people can go online at any time and have a look at progress, where we act. They can read up extensively on any one of the particular artists. 
and also look at the progress as we go ahead. Mm-hmm. And one final question, Martin. Speaking of uh, the artists, I'm just curious: is there is there a difference in art forms uh, from region to region? Because uh, I've been on your website, and the artworks displayed are gorgeous, but they all seem to use very vibrant colors and and similar figure figurines or. or, or figures actually how different are the types of art forms created uh, how do they differ from from region to region if at all Tanya I'm so glad you asked the question and it just shows to me that exactly what we are saying um, can be seen by a person not at all involved in the art um, on, on this level um, and I don't mean that in a bad way but you're absolutely right. There's a huge difference in art created from region to region. Now, as you've just rightly said, if you look at the Soweto School group, there's a, a common thread in coloring, in technique, and this is what bonds them all. Now, if you take, for instance, typical art created in the Cape Town region, there's a huge difference because it was done in a total different setting. Soweto was the cultural melting pot. Okay, now why do I say that? Soweto, when it was created in the early 1900s, all of a sudden, 12 different tribes were put into one communal area. So you would have Zulu, Sutu, Koza, Swazi, all of a sudden coming together. And we actually saw the birth of what today is known as Kwaito, which is a specific uh, form of music, um, a very well-known form of music, mm-hmm. uh, a way of dressing, um, a specific mapunsula, which was a specific way for the young African men to dress. This all was almost a new identity that came out of this melting pot, and out of that melting pot came this artwork, with a specific distinctive flavor. Now, almost all of these guys shared many common workshops, um, which was held by two or three prominent South African uh, artists at the time. So that thread, the vibrant colors which you're talking about, the typical figurines or the typical compositions, you can see that influence even if you look on it as an outsider. So it's, it's very interesting, and that is what the Soweto School is all about. Well, Martin, we have learned so much in our time with you today. Martin Britt, the president and founder of Soweto Fine Arts, we thank you for being with us today from South Africa on World Footprints Radio. Thank you so much. Ian, thank you, and thank you, Tanya. It's been great being with you and sharing. When we return, we'll talk about art as a force for cultural education, preservation, and philanthropy with some art collectors who recently gathered in Baltimore as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, I'm Alex from Baltimore, Maryland, and Tanya and Ian brought me to Baltimore by listening to World Footprints Radio. 
Health officials are concerned about a new influenza virus of swine origin that's spreading from person to person. Officials are acting to combat this threat, but the outbreak might grow, so be prepared. Store a two-week supply of food and water. Have two weeks of your regular prescription drugs at home. Keep health supplies on hand, including pain relievers and cold medicines. For more details, visit www.cdc.gov slash swine flu or call 1-800-CDC-INFO. A message from HHS. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Carter Fleming, Community Center Volunteer. The giving spirit is as passionate in the boomers today as it was in our 20s, and we as a generation can still impact our country. Lead, inspire, change the world again. Join thousands and find which volunteer opportunity is best for you. Call 1-800-424-8867 today or visit www.getinvolved.gov. This message is brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service in this station. Hello, this is Mertice Spadola from Gallery Mertice in Baltimore, Maryland, and I love World Footprint Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. In our last segment, Martin Britt spoke so passionately about art and cultural preservation in South Africa. At a recent symposium at Baltimore's Gallery Mertice, a panel of private art collectors, which included Robbie Apperson, Louis Ford, Dr. Acklin Lynch, and Troy Stanton, gathered to speak about art in their lives, their travels, and as a force for cultural education, preservation, and philanthropy. As art collector Lewis Ford stated, he uses travel to support his passion for art. A lot of, well not a lot, but any number of pieces have been acquired through travel. And these were not necessarily well-known artists, but again, they were pieces that attracted my eye and they were very good. Uh, I thought they were very good works. They as you go, as I go through the house and look at them, they always bring back the memories of, of the trips that I was on. So I, I really enjoy them from that standpoint. Another collector, Dr. Acklin Lynch, travels the world to build and grow his friendships with artists and, in turn, his art collection. Traveling all over the world, I decided that if I travel to Brazil, to South Africa, to Colombia, to, 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 to Venezuela, to Morocco, to wherever it is, to the Congo. The most important person for me to meet was an artist. I believe that the artist provided the genius and the understanding of people's condition and life. So I went always to go to, to look for the artist. As a matter of fact, I believe in artists more than I believe in academicians. And since I was driven by the Max Roaches and the Dizzy Gillespies and these kinds of people, Monk and these people, they're the ones who really helped me to, to, to elevate. Then going to see artists always remained very important. So my collection is a, re, is a reflection of the people that I met the people that I talked to and spent hours and hours, and, and I got all kinds of stories about them, but that's how it is. Here, Dr. Lynch recalls how one such friendship blossomed as one of his friends and artists grew in stature and how special it was to have one of his works. And the other one was a painter. And he had a piece on Yemanja, who is my Orisha. And he gave me that piece on, on, on Yemanja. And he went on to become a very famous painter in Brazil 
not only whose work, not only who performed well at the Sao Paulo Centennial, but his work also went to Italy and France, etc., etc., and now he's an older man. And, and, and it just came about through just that kind of, you know, meeting of people. But you have to go and live and spend some time with the artist, and then everything becomes so much clearer. They're such beautiful people. Because the artist speaks to us through color, texture, and space, these aspects of art are important in the art and the feeling they generate within us as Baltimore-based collector Robbie Apperson speaks to what attracts her to collecting. I acquire pieces which appeal to me um, in ways which involve color and texture, depth and intricacy. I love art which inspires both excitement and calm at once. And for some, those feelings that art creates within us are so deep, they're spiritual, as Lewis states. Someone sent me a card recently, and on the back was his heart, and inscribed in the heart was this quotation by Picasso, which said, art washes away the the dust from the soul of everyday life. And it adequately reflects how I feel about why I collect, because it it means so much. And it can give me joy when when, uh, I'm down. It can give me joy when I'm up. It, It just projects itself. And it jumps off the wall. So, um, I tend to acquire more so that uh, the more you have, the more you enjoy. As our collectors have said, art's about the preservation of culture and heritage. It can tell us where we've been as a nation and as a people. It can celebrate our triumphs over oppression. And it can also be a source for leaving a positive legacy, as Robbie's comments suggest. To the extent that a collector's art lives within the, the collector's home, um, the collection itself could be considered a preservation or, or a encapsulation of individual experience, um, experience that could be said to represent a congregate of cultural experiences. I'm no scholar, but I, I thought that this, this was the language that would be most appropriate, and now it seems a little stilted. Uh, in, in my case, therefore, I believe that my art collection stands as evidence of Uh, the culmination of experiences which have informed my life as a black woman. One day when I give this collection away I would hope that its message would would seem to be that Robbie Ackerson offered this collection in discernment of the stunning joy and beauty garnered somehow from our journey as a people from unspeakable hardship to artistic actualization. Now, sitting next to Dr. Lynch, I realize there's no delineation. It's just been fluid. We've been through it, we're going through it, and we've come out, and we have art. And uh, I, I feel, moreover, that if my collection could speak, it would say, this is art imitating triumph. A positive legacy art can leave is in educating children and building communities. Art collector Troy Stanton shares his art to accomplish just that. Troy, who is a barber in Baltimore, brings children and adults together in his barber shop to share art with them and help transform their lives in the process in a small but significant way. I believe art shouldn't be hoarded. And I'm in a very diverse neighborhood, so I bring my pieces that I collect to the public for others to see. 
And um, I brought it down to the barbershop a few years ago for the little children in the neighborhood, you know, um, to share it because I knew that in that particular neighborhood, our children would not be exposed to our art or art of any culture. So when I brought it down there, um, I found out that not only the children ever seen art, a lot of adults knew even less than children. So as I learned and as I grew, my collection grew, the children grew, the information grew, and it started to flourish. That's been a real passionate part of my collection is the, the exposure. And so I, and, and then with that, I get a chance to go out to meet exciting individuals, like you say, artists. I like movies, but um, being a barber, I, I, I really do get to meet a lot of people. Um, I like movies, you know, to meet an artist is more exciting and electrifying and stimulating to me than to meet a celebrity or a basketball star mm -hmm. or whatnot. The work of collectors such as Troy in using art to educate and inspire the children is something Dr. Lynch is passionate about as well, as he shares in this story of a little girl, a friend named Maya. I have a little adopted little, little, little sister who's three years old named Maya. And she comes to the house and she looks around and sees the work and she wants to paint, she wants to work, she wants to draw. She's just fascinated with it. There's a piano, I can't play the piano, but I got a piano. Maya wants to play the piano. Now that's what I think is the reflection. The reflection of the work is not simply the artistic work on, 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 on the wall or the piano as an instrument, but it's the imagination that is accrued from it that will then allow this little girl, Maya, to, 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 to tell the world how beautiful she is and how beautiful the people from whom she came are. So that, so that it is for the next generation, my children, grandchildren, etc., all the children in the neighborhood, as my brother quite rightly said, the children from the yard, Wherever they come from, they're going to have to come by, come and you know, and, and, and sit down and, and look at it and, and do whatever they want with it, dance to it, you know, and, and, and that's what becomes uh, a, a very, very important uh, for me. And, and therefore, it is in that sense, it is in that spiritual sense, that I think we should create environments where ancestors speak to us. For Dr. Lynch and the collectors we met, the preservation of culture through art is an ethical and moral imperative, as he so eloquently states. The preservation is, is not only an aesthetic question, aesthetic question, but is an ethical responsibility to the preservation of your life and your work. Because if I can work with you and you can do the things that you're supposed to do with me for the artist, and we can then move that whole, that, 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 that network or that group of people to elevate themselves, then it is economical, political, social, psychological, and spiritual. It's everything for me. As with any art form, whether it be culinary, audio, or visual, art is an expression of community, culture, and heritage. 
Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to connecting with you during the week on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Stitcher. So join us on our social networks and sign up for our newsletter at worldfootprints.com. It's been a pleasure to share some travel time with you today. We're Tanya Nee and Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. Same time, same frequency. And until then, live an abundant life through travel and leave positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved. Thank you.